morning, everyone. Uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, get started. We have a lot to cover this morning. Um, so let's go to uh, the Lord and seek his help. Almighty Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that uh, we could gather together as your people and study your holy word. Lord, I ask you to uh, illumine your word, open our hearts and minds, uh, teach us what you would have us learn, and may we apply your word to our lives and uh, be your witnesses uh, in this present age, uh, waiting for your return. In Christ's holy name, I pray and ask these things. Amen. Uh, so this morning, we will end our series on the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, we'll be examining chapter 32 uh, of the state of men after death and of the resurrection of the dead. I have provided an outline. Uh, truth be told, uh, could do like a three, four sermon or uh, lecture series on this. There's a lot of material here. Um, and I broken two cardinal rules in outline format. The outline is way too lengthy and uh, there's a lot of material there, but it speaks to how much there is in this chapter that we'll be examining this morning. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. Uh, we will stick with the outline. Uh, we will uh, go through each section in, in their respective order. So question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? And it answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The word forever presumes that man will live forever, and it speaks of the state of humanity beyond this life. Gerhard Voss said, eschatology precedes soteriology. Soteriology is the study of salvation. Uh, eschatology is the scriptural study of the future, the, the, the end times, the last days. So as Gerhardus Voss put it, there is an end to which you and I believers have been saved. And that will be the focus of our uh, study this morning. So as I was preparing for this study, I was thinking about why we should do this study. Why is this important? There are two passages that came to my mind that, uh, that communicated two important points to me. The first is that this is God's appointed end for us, for every single human being. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. And the second point, important point that underscores uh, why this study is important is that it speaks to our ultimate hope and the basis of our faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, speaking of the resurrection, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So let's uh, begin with section one. Uh, and we're, we're gonna look at it in, in portions of, uh, of each section. Section one says, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who give them. 
So this section is clear that we will experience physical death. And upon our death, our bodies will experience decay, corruption, and will return to dust. And physical death, we know, is one of the curses of Adam's disobedience, the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Garden of Eden. In Genesis, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Jesus Christ was the only one who did not experience corruption upon his physical death. The psalmist says, prophetically referring to Christ, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In this section, notice the word immortal. The word immortal conveys the idea of of living forever. So are the authors of our confession, are they uh, stating that we are eternal beings? And there are two schools of thought on immortality. The ancient Greek philosophy teaches that the human, uh, human soul is immortal, is eternal in the sense having no beginning or, or no end. The Bible clearly rejects that teaching. According to scriptures, every human being has its origin beginning from its creator God, who alone is truly eternal. The Greek philosophy also argues for an intrinsic uh, immortality for the, for the human being. That is, the human soul is, uh, is immortal in and of itself, aside from any outside aid or outside force. Uh, the Bible, on the, on the other hand, underscores an extrinsic, an extrinsic immortality. That is, each human uh, who has ever been created, who has ever lived, derives its immortality, immortality from God, its creator, who alone is the Alpha and the Omega. R.C. Sproul comments, the perpetual life of the soul resists, rests in the power of God, not in its own power. Continuing on in this section one, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately returned to God who gave them. So there are two significant, uh, significant statements or significant things from this statement of the Westminster divines. The first is their affirmation of the traditional view of the state of men after death. And this is known as the intermediate state. And this is the historic reformed view I got this quote from um, the Reformation Study Bible. This view, it says that this view holds that at death, the believer's soul goes immediately to be with Christ, to enjoy a continuous, conscious, personal existence. And this is consistent with the teaching of Scripture. The second is a denial of a false teaching known as soul sleep also known as psychopenicia. And this teaching states that upon our death, the soul immediately goes into a state of sleep and remains in that state of sleep until the time of our resurrection. So the scriptural support that we have, one of the clearest scriptural arguments that we have uh, for the affirmation of the traditional view of the intermediate state and the denial of uh, soul sleep is in Luke chapter 16. 
Turn with me to Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 19 through 21. And that is the story or the parable, Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So the rich man and Lazarus both die, and uh, Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man uh, wakes up, or uh, his soul is in Hades, and he is in torment in Hades. And the rich man uh, cries out to Abraham, Abraham, send Lazarus to alleviate me of my torment. So clearly, in this passage, there is evidence that... Um, both Abraham, Lazarus, and the rich man are, are conscious. They're not in a state of soul sleep. So this affirms the doctrine of intermediate state and also denies uh, the false teaching of soul sleep. Continuing on in this section, uh, we read, The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. Notice the order in this statement. First, you have the believer being made perfect in holiness, received into the highest heavens, and only then is, is uh, the believer able to see and behold the face of God. So it is imperative that the believer is perfected in holiness in order to behold the face of God. And this directly correlates with our sanctification. In fact, the word sanctify means to set apart or to declare holy. So the process of you and I, believer, being, uh, being readied to meet the face of God begins at the moment of our salvation. This is what the whole process of sanctification is, is all about, is being made holy each holier each and every day by the power of the Holy Spirit through the means of, of the word, prayer, and fellowship of the saints to meet our God and to worship him unhindered for all of eternity. And Paul says this in, in the context of living the Christian life in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So the, uh, so the scripture does not make a distinction here between a carnal and a spiritual Christian. You, a carnal Christian being someone who is saved by grace but continues to live a lifestyle of sin without repentance. There's no such thing as that. You're either a Christian or you're not. Either you're set apart uh, to, unto holiness to God and to meet a holy God with whom you'll have to worship for all of eternity or you're not. So uh, let's be clear on that. It's important because there, there's this fallacy that's going on in even mainline churches that is contrary to the doctrine, to the teaching of scriptures. And also scripture is clear in Ephesians chapter 2 uh, with respect to our salvation. Paul says we are saved by grace through faith unto good works. And Peter says strive for holiness without which no one will see God. A Christian will sin, but he will repent of that sin and return to God. And he will work out his salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in him 
to do and to will for its good pleasure. Let's uh, look at the, uh, the statement or the phrase, uh, the words in, in this section, behold the face of God in light and glory. And this is known as the beatific vision. This is what every saint longs for, to finally see God as he is. Turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. Here Paul talks about this. First Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So it is our perfection and holiness that affords us the beatific vision of our triune God. The Puritan Thomas Watson says, at that day, the veil will be pulled off, and God will show himself in all his glory to the soul. This side of God will be the heaven of heaven. We shall indeed have a sight of angels, and that will be sweet. But the quintessence of happiness and the diamond in the ring will be this. We shall see God. Now, there's a dynamic to this uh, beatific vision that we'll, we'll have to kind of unpack here. The scriptures testify that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So if God does not have a physical body, how can we behold God face to face and experience this beatific vision? The short answer is we take God at his word. With God, all things are possible. While God has not revealed to us how this beatific vision will unfold in, in our, uh, 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 upon our deaths, but we say that all things are possible with God. Yes, Mark. I've always read that, and I thought that we'll see the face of God Yes. I don't think that in our resurrected bodies, I don't think that in our I don't think that in our resurrected bodies we will be able to grasp the infinite. But that's what Jesus is, he's the God we, we will see Jesus face to face. Yes. And he is God, so Good point. You bring up a good point, and it's a good segue to what, I, what I'm going to be talking about next. Uh, appreciate that comment, Mark. Uh, R.C. Sproul, he surmised what Edwards had to say on this uh, in his commentary in the Confession. This is Edwards. Uh, God is not physical, but neither will we be physical in heaven. But Edwards said that we won't need them in the sense that we won't need our physical organs, our brain, our optic nerves, our eyes, because our soul will have a direct and immediate view of the being of God. This, percep this perception that we will have in heaven, even without our eyes, will be far greater than anything that we will perceive right now. And Thomas Watson, 
in his commentary on the Beatitudes, specifically the, the verse that says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, says this. The, um, excuse me, the, perce- the perception that, excuse me, I lost my uh, place here. Here's Watson. This side of God in glory is first partly, and into, uh, partly mental and intellectual. We shall see him with the eyes of our mind. But then he goes on to say, quoting um, Job chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. Turn with me to that uh, passage, uh, Job 19, 26 to 27. It's a really uh, telling passage on this vision that we will have of God and what Job has to say in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm going to start with verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. So Job, uh, several hundred thousands years removed from, from Christ through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, believes that he will see God face to face, even though he didn't have a full understanding of how that will be or what that, what will, that, what that will look like. Uh, Thomas Watson goes on to say uh, in this regard, partly... The, our beatic vision of God will also be corporeal in, in, in the terms of being physical. He says, but when I, when I say our seeing of God in, in heaven is corporeal, my meaning is that we shall with bodily eyes behold Jesus Christ, through whom the glory of God, his wisdom, holiness, mercy shall shine forth to the soul. He goes on to say, put a pack back of steel to the glass, and you may see, see a face in it. So the human nature of Christ is, as it were, a back of steel through which we see the glory of God. So it is through Christ Jesus that we have been sanctified. It is through him that we have entrance, gained entrance to, into heaven. And it's through Christ Jesus who he was there with his physical resurrected body, glorified body, is through whom we will have and experience this beatific beatific vision of our triune God. Let's continue on in this section. And here we will uh, begin our uh, our examination of the doctrine of hell. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where where they remain in torments and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. Jesus describes hell in Mark chapter 9, uh, saying where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And these are symbolic descriptions of hell. The reality of hell is more terrifying and more horrifying than the symbols that, they've come, that, that are used to describe it. The worm survives by feeding on something living, and the fire continues to consume as long as there is something for it to consume. So the language that Christ uses affirms the eternal reality of hell. Some believe that hell is the absence of God. However, that is not the the teaching of Scripture. That is not what, uh, what God says of himself 
in Psalm chapter 139, verses 7 through 8, the psalmist says, referring to God, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And God also speaks of himself as a consuming fire. We see that in Deuteronomy, in, uh, in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that as well. So there is a parallel of the description of God as being a consuming fire and hell as the place where the fire is not quenched. So there is nothing more terrifying and horrifying in hell than the presence of God in judgment, pouring out his wrath on the wicked for all of eternity. God's hot wrath and fury consumed Christ on the cross. Now the wicked will be consumed by that same wrath and fury of God, a holy God, for all eternity. So God is very present in, his hell, in hell by his judgment, through his judgment. Let's examine this, uh, uh, this phrase, and the souls of the wicked are cast into hell. Now, there are two schools of thought as to what the intermediate place of judgment for the wicked is. Uh, during this intermediate state, where do the wicked go upon their debts? The first camp, including the framers of this confession, believe that the wicked go straight to hell. There is no intermediate uh, uh, state uh, of, of judgment where they remain till uh, the resurrection, till the coming of Christ, uh, where they're judged and then eventually uh, cast into hell. In fact, the, uh, the confession goes on to affirm that besides these two places for the souls separated from their body, the scripture acknowledges none. So either there is heaven or hell. Among the commentators on the confession, A.A. A. Hodge, one of the older commentators, said, but where these places are situated and whether the locality of torment now, that is um, upon the time of the death of the wicked before the resurrection, is identical with the locality of the torment after the judgment, no man can tell because God has not revealed it. Chad Van Dixhorn says there is no other place mentioned besides heaven and hell. And... Um, that, that, that's where he ends it. But the second camp, they make an argument uh, distinguishing the intermediate place from the final place of judgment as being two distinct locations for the wicked. But before we go there, I think it's important that we spend a few minutes uh, looking at the various words that are used in reference to hell. In the Old Testament, the word Sheol is referred to a place of the dead. The Hebrew word Sheol literally means the place to which the dead descend at death. It is referred uh, to both the righteous and the wicked. It's not, doesn't, this, uh, the Old Testament passages do not necessarily make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked going uh, to a separate place other than going to Sheol upon their death. Um, 
And also, but in certain passages in the Old Testament, the word Sheol is used specifically to refer to a place of judgment for the wicked. So such usage has led some to believe uh, the school of thought that there are two compartments in Sheol, the upper compartment being for a, uh, for a place of abode for the righteous, and the lower compartment being the place of abode for the, for the wicked. Um, German uh, theologian and scholar um, Karl Heim, I think I'm pronouncing his last name right, he goes on to say it is believed that, that Christ, upon his, his death and prior to his resurrection, deli- delivered the righteous from the upper level of Sheol, the Old Testament saints, at the time of his resurrection. And uh, there seems to be scriptural support for that in First per- uh, Peter 3.19 and also Ephesians 4, 9 through 10, but this is beyond the scope of our study, uh, so we'll leave it at that for now. There was also the belief, the belief that the word Sheol was originally uh, used to, just to refer to a grave or a place of the dead. But over time, it, it, uh, it evolved to mean and refer specifically to a place of judgment for the wicked. Uh, in the Old Testament, the words Hades, Hell, and Gehenna are not used. They're not introduced uh, till the New Testament, and it is Christ our Lord who extensively brings the, introduces them and expounds on the doctrine of hell. Now, the, uh, the word uh, Hades, the Greek word Hades, means the abode of departed spirits. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, Hades, the word Hades uh, appears to be the, uh, the rendering of the Hebrew word Sheol. So Hades is the Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew word Sheol, and it means the, sa- uh, the same thing. It's equivalent to the same thing. One more word. The word Gehenna is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Gehinnom, and this means the Valley of the Suns. And it refers to a specific geographic location known as the Valley of Hinnom. And this is where the early uh, idolatrous practices of Baal worship and the abominable practices of child sacrifices uh, to the Bacon god Molech took place. So over time, prophetically, this place, Gehenna, uh, referring, uh, referring to the Valley of Hinnom, Came to, be the play, came to be understood among the Jews as the place of judgment of God on the wicked for their, for their immorality and for their idolatry. So keeping all of that in mind, I know that was, that was a lot, um, let's look at what the second camp has to say about, um, about their perspective on the intermediate state. And this includes theologians like Karl Heim, John Cooper, um, and one other gentleman, I forget his name, um, they make a distinction that Hades is an intermediate state of punishment for the wicked, and Gehenna as being the uh, eternal place of punishment for the wicked following their final judgment. And Gehenna is also referred to as the eternal lake of fire. The scriptural argument uh, for this uh, second viewpoint, maybe certain passages in Revelation. 
Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Let's look at Revelation chapter 1. How are we doing on time here? And we'll be looking at verse 18. And also we'll be looking at Revelation uh, 20. Uh, and here Jesus is speaking. Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. And let's go over to the second to the last chapter in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20 verses uh, 13 and 14. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So there seems to be a distinction between Hades and the lake of fire. Namely, Hades, again, being the intermediate state of punishment and the lake of fire as being the eternal place of punishment. In fact, the, uh, the, uh, the Greek word lake used in the, in the context of lake of fire, every time it is used in the New Testament, uh, just means the word pour. So in the sense of the wrath of God being poured out eternally on the ju- in, uh, in judgment on the wicked in the lake of fire. Now, there are two heresies or two uh, errant doctrine on, um, uh, on the final judgment on the wicked. The first is annihilationism, and the second is universalism. Uh, Constantine Campbell, in his book, Paul and the Hope of Glory, uh, say, uh, argues that uh, the apostles' usage of the word destruction has led certain scholars to interpret that Paul was teaching this errant doctrine of doctrine of annihilationism. And what is this doctrine? It teaches that the wicked are not judged for all of eternity in hell, but rather they're destroyed permanently. They, know, they cease to exist after being destroyed by God. And that is contrary to the testimony of scripture. And, uh, excuse me, and the reason for it is because of Paul's usage of the word destruction. However, if you look at the Greek word, for destruction, it does not include or convey the meaning of dissolution and disappearance in referring to the judgment of the wicked. So there's no argument to be had there. The second uh, Aaron doctrine is universalism. And uh, uh, again, in his book, Constantine Campbell uh, made, made the argument that Carl, ba- Carl Barth uh, seems to believe, seemed to have believed in universalism that in the end, God will not judge the wicked, but rather make a way because of his uh, uh, love and compassion for all uh, to come into heaven and in, and in the end uh, save all of humanity, regardless of what they believe in Christ. And that is a fallacy, and we ought to reject that. Now let's look at section number two. <clears throat> at the last day, such as are found alive shall not die but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities which shall be united again to their souls forever. 
Let's look at um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. First Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. And this is one of the strongest support, uh, scriptural support of the affirmation of this statement of our confession. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So this is known as the general resurrection. All those righteous who have died prior to the return of Christ will be simultaneously raised from the dead. And those righteous who remain alive at Christ's return will meet with him in the clouds and will forever be with our Lord. And our resurrected bodies will unite with our souls. I like how uh, Dan put it last week, we'll be slapped together. Uh, but this is the final state of the, of the righteous. Now our re- resurrected bodies will be completely different from our former, former physical bodies. They will no longer have the lingering effects of sin being prone to physical and mental pain or infirmities. But most importantly, and this is the most glorious thing, is that our bodies will no longer sin against God and will no longer sin against each other. And that's going to be a beautiful thing. And this transformation is instantaneous. Paul describes it as being changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Historically, there have been sects within Judaism and Christianity who have denied the resurrection. We saw that, we see that even during the time of, uh, of Christ's earthly life. The Sadducees, who were the religious scholars, who were among the religious scholars in Jesus' day, denied the resurrection of the dead. During Christ's interaction with the Sadducees, he refuted their belief, stating that God has referred had even going back to the uh, uh, Pentateuch, whom the Sadducees firmly believed in, that God had always referred to himself in his communication with his people, that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. So right there, Christ uh, flat out refutes the, uh, the Sadducees' errant belief uh, or denial of the resurrection of the dead. Also during Apostle Paul's ministry, uh, he warned Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 to be wary of and stand firm against two individuals, Hymenaeus and Phytias, who had swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection had already happened, and they were upsetting the faith of some. Uh, also there is this teaching uh, or um, uh, fallacy known as full preterism, And this teaches that all the biblical prophecies concerning the second advent of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the full arrival of the kingdom of God had already occurred. And they they make the argument that this happened at 70 AD when Rome came and destroyed the Jerusalem Jerusalem temple, uh, doing away with the old covenant uh, um, sacrificial system, and uh, uh, the, the Jewish age. But 
it uh, neglects to understand two things. Uh, if that were the case, why are we still in sin? Why are we still in our physical, infirmed bodies? And why do we not have the beatific vision of God? Because th that has not taken place yet. And we ought to deny that as well, deny the full preterism. Uh, there is a distinction that has to be made because in the Olivet Discourse, J Jesus had said, had taught that, yes, the end of the Jewish age will happen in your generation. This, will not, this generation will not pass away before the end of the Jewish age will, will take place. But referring to the age to come, that is the second coming of Christ and his final return, he says in his humanity, in his human nature, no man, not even the son, knows the, the time uh, except uh, but the Father in heaven. So the distinction has to be made, which is not made by those who argue for full preterism. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next section, our final section three. Uh, the bodies of the unjust shall by the power of Christ be raised to honor. The bodies of the just by his, by his spirit unto honor and be made comfortable to his own glorious body. Paul calls Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. So if Jesus, being God, has the power to deliver his elect from the wrath to come, from the wrath of God, he equally has the power as, as God to deliver the retrobate, the wicked, to the wrath of God for all eternity in hell. And that is what uh, the, uh, uh, the Westminster divines are affirming here, that Christ has the power to do both, and he does both as judge. Chad Van Dixhorn comments on this section, Yes, by the power of Christ, the bodies of those who are unrighteous shall be brought to life. But there is no promise of power, of glory, of anything good uh, for those resurrected and reunited people. The bodies of the just or the righteous, on the other hand, will have an entirely different experience and existence. Astonishingly, for those who look to Christ, the dishonor and the weakness that characterizes now will be gone forever. The lifelong process of being made Christ-like shall be in that moment totally complete. Before we go to our time of application, uh, let's end with some principles here. There are some things uh, that we've looked at on the doctrine of heaven and hell that the scripture is firm on. And where the scripture is clear, we, we ought to be firm on that. We have to embrace those doctrines. There is a heaven, there is a hell. The righteous being in Christ go to heaven and, and are glorified uh, having resurrected bodies, uh, seeing and experience the, be the beatific vision of God. The wicked, uh, upon their deaths are judged. They're in uh, torment, be it in the uh, intermediate state and ultimately in the eternal state upon their judgment. We have to hold clear, uh, 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 dear, we have to hold those doctrines near and dear to our hearts because that is what the scriptures clearly teaches. 
but as far as making the distinction between the time and the place of, uh, of heaven, the location of heaven, the location of hell, and uh, the dynamics of the intermediate state, and what that uh, beatific vision will look like, or how it will work itself out, we ought not to be dogmatic about it. Uh, but we ought to be, uh, 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 allow for some liberty as long as we're not erring from what scripture has clearly taught us. Um, let's spend the next few couple of minutes in application. Um, this is something that needs to be said in terms of application. Um, and uh, the word that comes to our mind is comfort. Um, and the passage I would refer to, uh, you to is Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 to 4. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will, wipe a, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall, be, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Um, there will be tears of joy in heaven because of our glorification and seeing God finally for, for who he is. And it'll be a great time of rejoicing. But also there will be there will be pain because we will realize that there will be loved ones there that, uh, uh, that will, will not be with us in heaven, that are in the end, they ha are judged and will be cast into hell and will be forever separated from us. And here God gives us comfort because highly likely we have loved ones who are already there and we will ha have loved ones who will be there one day because they will reject Christ. But God says here that he, the God of all comfort, will comfort us. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And that when he says that there will no longer be any pain, there will no longer be any sorrow, that will be the reality for us. And when we see and experience that beatific vision of God through Jesus Christ, uh, we will have a fuller understanding that uh, the grace of God is profound and the justice of God is just indeed. And heaven is heaven because of God and hell is hell because of God and we will uh, even find comfort that it is right that even our loved ones, as difficult as it is, are condemned to hell because they rejected God when we finally see him as he is. Uh, real quickly, three application points. The first one that we, uh, we have to take to heart is perseverance. In the light of this doctrine of heaven and the glory that will be ours in Christ and, uh, and all that we face in this veil of tears is to persevere. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And the second uh, application point is encouragement. And Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, 
encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And both these uh, passages are on the heels of the resurrection passages that Paul communicates these words of uh, application to uh, uh, the early believers and by extension to us. Lastly, in Jude chapter 23, Jude uh, encourages the saints to save others by snatching them out of the fire. And the, the doctrine of hell should, uh, should continue to give us the passion to pray for the lost and to be re- in relationship uh, to, with the lost, be it our lost loved ones, our neighbors, our colleagues, even strangers, because the grace of God is, is great to bring such people, even as, as, it, did, as it did Paul, to saving faith. So that was a lot to take in, but, uh, but I encourage you to go back and look at these passages and persevere, take comfort, and witness for Christ our Lord. Let me go ahead and end in prayer, and then uh, we'll take the question. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. I pray that you would continue to uh, work uh, your mighty work in our hearts and minds uh, in light of your teachings on heaven and hell to persevere, to comfort one another, and to be your witness uh, in our community. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.